If you open your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24. I was working on the message. It appeared it was going to be rather long, so I cut a lot of it out. And then I realized it was still pretty long. I'll just talk faster. I'll try to take as few breaths as possible. Anyway, let's go to the Lord. Father, we are so grateful that we have the great privilege to be able to gather together as believers to, in particular, focus on the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in that, Father, we have been assured that our salvation is complete in Christ, that you have received his sacrifice on our behalf, that our debt has been paid, that we will rise again from the dead, that we have a place that is guaranteed us in heaven, that we do possess even now eternal life. And for that, Father, we are thankful. We know, Lord, that we will never be able to thank you enough. And we are grateful, Lord, that you do not place before us a ledger of things that we must accomplish to be able to earn our way uh, and to show our appreciation. But that, Lord, as we just simply believe by faith all that Christ has done, we belong to you and you have adopted us into your family. And, Father, we are grateful for that. So, Father, we ask now that as we continue our worship, that, Lord, as we turn to the word, we ask, Father, that you will bless us, that we will be encouraged in our hearts and strengthened in spirit. And, Father, we may continue to live in light of the coming day when Christ will return. As always, we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking, and said, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, seen, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then if you would jump to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to, in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
Let me read you two verses from Acts, which reads in, verse, in chapter 3 of verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So when I was younger, I used to always wonder what it was that Jesus did when he was with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. That he then began to explain to them the scriptures. I mean, what, what would he have said? Where would he have started? And we don't know exactly where he began. We don't have uh, a transcript, a transcript of that conversation. But if we turn to the Old Testament, we can see very clearly many of the things that he most likely covered with them. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 3. We're going we're to start there, even though I am going to read a passage from the book of Jude. But basically, what we need to remember is this. The very first prophecy of the Bible is Genesis 3.15, and I'll get to that in a moment. But we have two messianic prophecies from the pre-flood era. In other words, before Noah's flood, there's two prophecies. So I'll read to you one of them from the book of Jude. In Jude, verse 14, it says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So immediately preceding this passage here in Jude, Jude has mentioned that there is judgment on the apostates and it's going to happen. And he, in a sense, confirms it by making this reference to a pre-flood prophecy that is made by Enoch the seventh from Adam. Now, people have kind of puzzled over this, kind of saying, well, there's no other reference in the Old Testament to this. Uh, you know, this, this little prophecy here, it is very similar to a prophecy or to a passage that's found in the apocryphal book of Enoch, uh, but the book of Enoch is not considered scripture, and so there's all this, you know, back and forth about that. It's true the book of Enoch is not in scripture, but that doesn't mean that everything in the book is false. There's truth that's there. It's just not considered to be the word of God. Some suggest that maybe Jude received this directly from the Lord, uh, and maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But the bottom line is this. Enoch's prophecy was made, and the point is it points to the return of Christ to the earth with thousands upon thousands of his angels, that's his holy ones, when his purpose will be to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly with unanswerable evidence that their actions, manners, and words have been ungodly. Rather than being true spiritual leaders, they had spoken harsh words against Jesus Christ, whom they had denied. Now again, remember that when the Bible speaks of judgment against the ungodly, do not imagine for a moment that that's only those individuals who are involved in really bad things. I mean, they're included. You know, those who kill women and children and those who rob and steal and all those types of things. That's all included in that. But remember that the word ungodly encompasses not only that, but it also encompasses what we would call good people. Good people who live their lives as if God just doesn't matter. We need to remind ourselves that it's a sin to not worship God. It is sinful for us to live our lives as if we don't need him. It's sinful for us to live our lives and never give him a moment's thought. He is the one who created us and gave us life. What would we call an individual? And let's say that he was raised in a very good home. 
with very loving parents who did all the right things for their child, and yet they lived their life as if they had no family. They lived their life as if they had no parents who loved them. There is no respect shown, no honor shown. No, we would say there's something wrong with that individual. Why are they acting that way? We would say that's wrong to do that. Well, it's just on a much larger scale when, we, when, we, when it comes to who God is and all that he has done for us and all that he has given us and how our lives depend upon him. But in Genesis 3.15, it reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The context of this is Adam and Eve have sinned. They have brought, you know, destruction upon themselves and upon this planet and all their offspring. God is cursing Adam, he is cursing Eve, and he is cursing the earth, and he is cursing um, Satan. And this pops up in the middle of all of that. It's a prophecy that was given by God, given in the Garden of Eden, immediately after the fall. He spoke to the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve about the consequences of the fall. Both the serpent and the woman had been involved in the fall, and they were both part of this resulting curse. Three things I want to point out. Number one, it was between the woman herself and the serpent. Eve now sees the serpent as the enemy of God and consequently as her personal enemy. Secondly, there is hostility between her seed and Satan's seed. Her seed refers to her descendants, mankind in general. Satan's seed probably refers to evil people who set themselves against the seed of the woman. Jesus uses similar terminology when he said, once you are of your father, the devil. They oppose the redemptive purposes of God. So here the prediction is that there will always be antagonism between those who are for and those who are against the purposes of God. Good and evil will continually be in conflict. Thirdly, there is this theme that we're going to see throughout uh, the rest of the references that we look at, and it's the theme of suffering and glory. The suffering of the Christ. Remember that Christ is a Greek word which is equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we can say Jesus the Messiah, same thing. When we say that we have Christological references in the Old Testament, well, there are Messianic references in the Old Testament. It's the same thing that we're talking about. So in the final outcome of the battle between the serpent and the seed of the woman, it would be settled by direct conflict between two coming figures. One will be the serpent, Satan himself, and the other will be Jesus, who is described as the seed of the woman. And God said to the serpent, you shall, uh, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now God spoke to Satan, or to the serpent, as a person, and so his opponent should be viewed as a person. There would be personal combat and personal victory. The seed, again, of the woman is Jesus Christ, who came into direct combat with Satan and the cross. Now there is more. Note that what God said to Satan about the seed of the woman. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you, Satan, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The bruising of Satan's head in the battle means that he will be defeated by the seed of the woman. His works will be destroyed, his captives set free. This was fulfilled at Calvary, where Jesus Christ destroyed him who had the power of death that is the devil. Thus the seed of the woman crushed the serpent's head. On the other side of the prophecy is that in the process of bruising the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman will be bruised on the heel. This means that the seed of the woman would himself be crushed or bruised, but only on the heel. In his redemptive work on the cross, he was, as it says in Isaiah 53, crushed for our iniquities. 
but he was not defeated by death. He rose from the death, of, he rose from death in triumph. His suffering and death climax in resurrection and glory. Then Jesus could have easily begun to speak to them about Psalms 2. In the second psalm, the second psalm was quoted seven times in the New Testament. Each time it's quoted, the subject is the Messiah. His suffering is referred to in the context of a coalition of four enemies who conspire against him. There's nations, peoples, kings, and rulers. In Psalm 2, beginning in the first two verses, it reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. I know many people don't think of some of the events that take place in today's world in this way, but I think that we should. We'll just take the most recent example, all the horrible things that are going on between Russia and the Ukraine. When it comes to that, we have all these different political leaders and leaders of nations trying to figure out what to do. Sending money, helping refugees, sending uh, Ukrainians weapons, all these sanctions against Russia, all these different things they're doing. But you will notice, and some people might think that this is kind of weird because they wouldn't expect this of the, of the nation or the heads of the nations to do this, but if you think about it, they really should. No one's calling for us as a nation or for the nations of the world to come together and to pray that the Lord would end the conflict. There's an absolute absence of any reference to anything spiritual. Because the world in general doesn't believe that the spiritual is real. I mean, they do in a sense, in the psychological sense. But in the sense that there is a real God who does intervene in history, there is none of that. Man is convinced, absolutely convinced in general, he can solve these things on his own. That's what, he, that's what he's convinced of. That's why there is no call to prayer. It's not only that they don't believe in God. It, it's stronger than that. They believe that they are the answer. We can figure this out. We haven't yet, and we won't, and things will continue to get worse in one way or other. And even if we put a fire out here, there'll be a fire over here. And then one starts over here, and one starts over there. It just never ends. In Acts chapter 4, Peter quoted these verses here from the second psalm, and he applied it directly to the suffering and death of Jesus himself. In Acts 4, I'll begin reading in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In the second psalm, it goes on to point out that the very one whom they conspired against and killed would be exalted and enthroned. God in heaven responds to their plot against his anointed, and he laughs at their puny plans. Then he declares what he will do. Psalm 2 says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the psalm puts together the plot of the evil people to, of evil people to bring about his suffering and death, along with the responses of heaven to exalt him as king in Zion. And we have again his suffering and his glory. 
In the eighth psalm, the messianic psalm, this messianic psalm revolves around the glory of God and the dignity of man. When it touches on the subject of man, David writes this in verses 4 and 5. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Three New Testament passages apply these verses to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, and also in Hebrews chapter 2. All three of those passages emphasize that Jesus has been crowned with glory and majesty. But the Hebrew passage also explains that his, cro his crowning emerged from suffering and death. Let me read to you from Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus could have continued as they walked on the road to Emmaus and talked about Psalm 22. It is considered by many the great psalm of suffering, the suffering of the Savior, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is one of the central passages on the atonement in the Old Testament. It begins with Jesus' cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many phrases in the following verses describe his suffering in very vivid terms. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They wag their heads saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The theme of the suffering of the Messiah looms very large. And if you've ever heard a message or read anything concerning how one dies and how one suffers in crucifixion, it is amazing what you read in Psalms 22, because that was written at least 150 years before crucifixion was known by man. It was a special element that was devised and then improved upon to bring about as much suffering as possible. You may be aware, we've mentioned before, that, that in crucifixion, oftentimes the Roman soldiers would cut out the tongue of the individual when they crucified him. And the reason for that is because the suffering is so great, many individuals would begin to try to swallow their tongue to cause themselves to die immediately because the suffering was so great. They just couldn't take it. So the Romans thought they would put an end to that because the goal was for you to suffer as much as possible. That's how they ruled the peoples they conquered. It was through fear. You didn't want that to happen to you. It was considered to be such a cruel form of death that if you were a Roman citizen, one of the privileges that you possess as a Roman citizen is if you ever committed a crime worthy of death, you would not be crucified. You would be put to death in a merciful way. It would be a quick death. No Roman citizen was ever crucified because of that. It was so, such a, uh, an obscene thing that you know, when they had their, 
when the Roman people would have their parties and, and you know, or have a, a guest over for lunch or whatever it happened to be, there was a certain thing you would never bring up. You never brought up crucifixion. That was considered to be rude. That would be like cussing and swearing in someone's house. You just wouldn't do that. It would be the, one of the worst offenses that you could ever commit against them. But in the 22nd Psalm, it doesn't end with just the theme of suffering. Because the psalmist here prays for deliverance. In verse 20 and 21, it says, Deliver my soul from the sword, my, previous, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And what is followed by that is what has been called a resurrection shout. Which in verse 14, it says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. From the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. Then follows a prophetic picture of his glory, which emerges out of his saving work. His glory shines on the three groups that would benefit from his work. First, believers, he calls them his brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. They will enjoy the blessing. The second group is the offspring of Jacob, which would be the Jews. They will glorify him. Israel will be restored to a covenant relationship with Jehovah. And finally, it says in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. So Psalm 22 moves from the suffering of the Lord to consummation. The psalm closes with the phrase, he has done it, which in, is in essence the same as saying it is finished. So Psalm 22 begins and ends with the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. What many people do believe is that when Jesus was on the cross, he would have quoted the entire psalm very quietly and shouted out the first and last verses. Again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Any Jewish individual around the cross when he uttered those words knew exactly where that came from. Many of them had it memorized. They knew exactly what that psalm would say. And then, of course, at the end when he said, it is finished. And so the suffering and the glory of God is recorded for us in the Psalms. It's also in the prophets. That's the third category of scripture mentioned by the Lord to his disciples in which the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah are found. He, uh, again, it's called the prophets. By this, he meant the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. There are two prophets who specifically deal with the suffering and glory of the Messiah. That is Isaiah and Zechariah. We'll only talk about Isaiah. Isaiah saw more clearly than any other prophet the coming of the glory of the Lord as Jesus the Messiah. He viewed him as the shoot that would spring from the stem of Jesse and become a glorious branch. The Messiah will be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. He will judge with righteousness and bring peace to earth. All of that is in chapter 11. As well as his resting place will be glorious. Then in chapter 32, he will be king and will rule in righteousness. And as we all know in Isaiah chapter 9, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. <coughs> Along with many other references to his coming glory, Isaiah also speaks of his suffering. You read Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, chapter 50, chapters 52 through 53. In these, the Messiah is the chosen servant of Jehovah, who, who obediently accomplishes the task of saving sinful mankind. To do this, the servant was required to become a sacrifice for sin. Two of these passages put the suffering and glory of the Messiah together. That would be Isaiah 49 and then Isaiah 52 through 53. Isaiah 49 verse 7 begins with the Messiah's rejection. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. But then follows 
that with a very strong contrast of recognition by the mighty kings of the earth, where it reads, Kings shall see and arise, princes shall bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. There's a similar contrast in Isaiah 52. It is arranged so that the suffering of the Messiah is again between two statements of his glory. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Then there's a statement about his humiliation in verse 14. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Some believe, as I do, is that after Jesus was scourged, when he was brought before the people and Pilate said, Behold the man, we believe that the reason why Pilate made that statement was because no one could tell who was standing in front of him. They didn't recognize him. He was so ripped to shreds and so bloodied by the beating and, that he had taken, and his, his, probably his, his face and different places were swelling from the blows that he took. He had to say, Behold the man, so they would understand what the reference was to who they were looking at, and that it was Jesus. Having spoken of his redemption through suffering, Isaiah then also exclaims, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling here refers to the cleansing effect of the servant's suffering and death. It speaks of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which sprinkles better than the blood of Abel, which is in Hebrews 12. In the next verse in Isaiah 52, verse 15, it refers back, refers back now to the theme of his glory. And it reads, Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. In speechless astonishment, they acknowledge who he is. That chapter follows this summary statement of glory, suffering, glory. Chapter, 52, chapter 53 of Isaiah goes on to explain in minute detail the sufferings of the coming servant. Some of you have heard us mention this before, that in the Jewish synagogues, when they read through the Old Testament in their public readings every year, they never read Isaiah 53. They just skip it. Perhaps it's because too many questions will be asked. If a rabbi is asked about Isaiah 53, they will say that the individual that's being spoken of is not an individual. They'll say that it's Israel. My friend Honor Futenbaum says, well, then that would just beg the question, why is God placing the sin of the world on Israel? And that question cannot be answered. It's because it's speaking of Christ. Isaiah 53 is considered by many to be the greatest Christological passage in the Old Testament. The, suffering, the, the, the servant renders himself a guilt offering for the sins of the people. Immediately after referring to his death as an offering, Jehovah explains, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. That is the language of resurrection. After being cut off in death, his days will be prolonged in resurrection glory. So again, we have this twofold theme of Christ's suffering and Christ's glory, which are revealed in the writings of Moses, in the Psalms, and in the prophets. So again, now let's look at the suffering and glory that is fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection, what we read at length from Luke 24. The events surrounding the trials and crucifixions of Jesus left the disciples in such a state of bewilderment, despite the many times that Jesus had clearly told them that it would happen. All their expectations of him as the Messiah King have been dashed. The report of resurrection reached them, but it seemed to his disciples as nonsense. And they would not believe them. That's the report of the women. That's in Luke 24. What we read earlier, two of these discouraged disciples set out for the village of Emmaus. 
As they walked and conversed about the events, the risen Jesus joined them. They didn't recognize him. When the, when the disciples explained their perplexity to the unknown traveler, he said again to them, O oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? They, for whatever reason, they weren't getting that. They had not gotten the fact that sin had to be dealt with. They believed in sin. They knew there were sacrifices for sin. They knew sin separated them from God. But they had just missed this whole idea of the servant coming and suffering for them. And forgiving their sin. And so Christ covered with them the theme of suffering and his glory. It was necessary because the prophets had foretold both. Then he explained to them from the scriptures all things concerning himself. In fact, when he had dinner with them and he broke bread, it was at that point their eyes were opened to see who he was. The Lord himself had unlocked their minds to see that Messiah's suffering and glory were central to the great theme of scripture. Well, when that took place, the two Emmaus disciples could not keep the news to themselves. They remembered that their hearts had been burning within in fact, Luke 24, 32 says their hearts were burning within us. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Imagine what that would have felt like. You're walking with Jesus. You don't know it's him. And he's basically quoting to you verbatim and explaining the Old Testament and showing perfectly how all those things apply to the man Jesus, to his death and his resurrection. That, there, you know, that burning would have been that, that uh, a sense of anxiety and excitement that you, you know this is true and you're excited about it. And that's what they were experiencing. And so once their eyes were open, they hurried back to Jerusalem to report their experience to the 11 and those who were with them. And those who heard their report were incredulous until Jesus then suddenly appeared to them. And what did Jesus do when he appeared? He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed. One of, the themes, one of the themes that you see here is the disappointment of Christ in human beings who have the truth of the word of God before them, who understand it and don't believe. He doesn't praise them because they now believe when he appears to them. He scolds them because they didn't already believe. They should have been believing the scripture, and they didn't, and that was a problem. In fact, he showed him his hands and his feet, and they were still in unbelief. And finally, after he had eaten some broiled fish, the scriptures say, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. If you are a Christian, that means that there was a point in your life when you were hearing the gospel. It may have been the first time, it may have been the 50th time, but you were hearing the gospel and God opened your minds to understand. And you believed. It is at times sad that those of us who've had our minds opened by God to the word of God, to believe, don't always live any different than we do. We don't always act any different than we do. We don't act like those who truly rest on the truth of the word of God, that Christ is risen, and we have this great hope for us. 
We worry and we wring our hands and we're anxious just like everybody else. As if we have no hope. But remember, our minds have been opened by God. You and I do not believe in the word of God. We don't believe in Christ because we're smarter than others or because we had Christian parents. Having Christian parents is great, but unless God opens your mind, you are blind. Remember, Christ appeared to them and walked with them and taught them, and they still didn't recognize who he was until that took place. But that also reveals to us the blinding power of sin. And that is why even when we talk about different ways to share the gospel of Christ with non-believers, we do emphasize that we pray, pray that God would what? Open their minds, open their eyes, help them to see. That the book that we gave out that you could give for free to whoever, that explains in, in incredible, logical, reasonable detail of the truth of the resurrection, where it really is, in a sense, ir, it's, it's irrefutable, that he rose from the dead. How can someone read that and say, well, that was nice, or, well, yeah, I read that? Their minds have not been opened by God. So when you give them that book to read, we not only pray that they will read it, we pray that God will open their minds. Remember, it's the, it's the responsibility, the stated responsibility of the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin and of the resurrection and of judgment. And we pray for that. God seeks to use us but he doesn't depend upon us. We depend upon him. How wonderful it is to see. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. And maybe you have. When you, when you're, maybe it's with your own child or whoever it is you've been talking to. And then you, you, you see that moment in time when the lights come on. When all of a sudden they see. When they understand. Maybe when they feel conviction. And, and they're getting it. What a wonderful thing to be able to see. What a wonderful thing to be able to experience. And so remind yourselves of these things, that God has opened your mind so that as we gather here this morning, in particular, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a glorious hope and future we have because of him. In fact, in a few moments when we take communion, remember that, you know, there's not a whole lot of things that we have to do as far as, I guess you might call rituals within Christianity. This one, the taking of communion, is the one that encompasses all three aspects of life in this one thing. The past, the present, and the future. When, when we gather and we begin to pray and we begin to, to, to you know, meditate on what we're going to be doing when we partake of communion, we're looking in the past at an actual event that took place. That event that we read about that fulfills what it says in Genesis and Psalms and Isaiah and then Zechariah and all the others. We are remembering the real history of what took place. And of course we understand it theologically, we know why it took place. But then as we think back about it, we are living here in the present moment and we are experiencing the immediate effects of what God has done for us in the past. I am sitting here as one who's been adopted by God. My sins have been forgiven. And I now belong to him. I can boldly approach the throne of grace in my time of need and find help. He is always there by my side. He is always there. He is for me. He is watching over me. He is my God. I am his child. And so we then together, as we partake of communion together, presently 
experiencing the immediate real-time effects of what has taken, taken place in the past. But there's also the future aspect of this because the Lord said that he would partake of this one day when he comes again, that we partake of this looking forward to his what? To his soon return. We look forward to his return, you know, because he's alive. And that's the whole idea behind that. He's alive and he's going to return. And so we are, we are, in a sense, celebrating his death, but in reality, we are celebrating his death and his life and his future coming. What a wonderful thing that is. And quite solemn, as we are told, to not partake of it unworthily. So in a few moments, I'm going to ask if the, the deacons who are going to serve communion, if they would go ahead and make their way up to the, uh, to the front row now at this time. I'm going to pray, and then Tom's going to come, and he's going to lead us through uh, the, um, uh, the taking of the Lord's table together. But if you do not know Christ, I want to just remind you of this. The partaking of communion is not going to save you. So don't do it. Because in essence, you're kind of making fun of Christ. You're, you're making very little of what he has done. It is reserved for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. I would also remind you that even as a believer, remember that you're not earning points with God by partaking of communion. If you've been involved in things you know you should not have been involved in, and let's say you're not quite dealing with them correctly, the partaking of communion does not fix that. It does, it's not going to make up for anything. What we need to remember is that we, that, that we need to come to Christ. We, we need to make sure that we are dealing with our sin. It's not that we live in perfection because we cannot. But the bottom line is, is that when it comes to that, we need to make sure that we are individuals who are dealing with our sin. And we are celebrating that we are forgiven. And it's on the basis of the blood of Christ that I'm able to partake of communion. So just remember that it's not going to earn you and I any points. And so I would say then that if you're struggling with sin, you do not allow struggle with sin to keep you from partaking of communion. But I will say this. There may be some where there's not much of a struggle. There are certain individuals you just not only have you not forgiven, you're not going to forgive them because you don't even think about it. There are certain things you might be involved in doing that even though you may have been convicted by God the Spirit, you're not really, you're not really paying any attention to that. I would say you probably shouldn't partake of communion. Probably just need to hold off because you're making a mockery of what Christ has done for us. You're viewing your sin as being minimal at best. So we don't need to be perfect. And we will never be perfect. We do so not to earn points with God. This is for our benefit. It, it reminds us of what Christ has done for us. And we partake together because we are one in him and he in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for all that we have read today concerning your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for his willingness to come and to live that life on our behalf. Knowing, Lord, that even while he did that, we were actively hating him. And we thank you, Lord, for his willingness to obey, as Hebrew says, to the point of death. To taste death for all, that we might be forgiven. As always, we ask, Lord, for those who may not know you. That, Father, that in your patience and kindness, you would convict them of their sin and their need for Christ. And, Lord, that you would bring them to yourself. We ask, Father, for your blessing on this time, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.